All right. Hello and welcome everyone to the February 2019 hashtag exchange essay chat on making private practice a reality. Um, I'm Kyle Stapleton, um, student physical therapist and the APTA SA director of communications. And we're joined by guest Sandra Norby. She's the president of the APTA private practice section. So Sandra, thank you so much for joining us tonight. You bet. Thank you, Kyle, for inviting me. Yeah, so for all our viewers that are, that are on right now that are going to be watching, if you haven't been part of an hashtag exchange SA chat before, you can interact with us right here on Facebook Live. And there's also a Twitter conversation happening right now as well. And all you need to do is just follow the hashtag um, exchange SA. You know, we want to see all the questions that you have. So can you, if you, you, can, you can roll all those um, through the comments. We'd, uh, we'd put them right in the queue and we, uh, we'd get them answered for you. Um, so, yeah, and whoever's joining us tonight, like shout out your name, your school, and your year. So if you're a hashtag DPT student, Hashtag PTA student, um, hashtag fresh PT, you know, and anyone else, you know, shout out your name in school because we'd love to hear from you. Um, so we're going to do like our, our announcements at the beginning this time. So um, so just everyone knows. So as always, we're looking for, for Pulse contributors. So if you need more information on that or um, if you want to have more information um, to submit a Pulse blog, just email pulse at apta.org. Um, Federal Advocacy Forum. So. FAF is taking place in just over a month from, uh, from March 31st to April 2nd in Washington, D.C. Multiple um, board members from the Student Assembly will be there. So, you know, we're looking to get as much student participation as possible. So definitely consider attending that if you can. Um, and reach out, reach out to us if you have any questions about that. And the deadline to register is March 18th. Um, and someone will drop the link into the, in the comments for that. Um, APTA Next uh, registration just opened up as well. Um, it's a little looking farther ahead. So that's June 12th to June 15th in Chicago, Illinois. Um, so someone will drop that link in the comments as well. Um, we've been getting the word out. APTA SA core ambassador applications are now open um, until March 1st. So you can check and see if your state is due for a new CA, uh, new CA term. And if you feel like you're interested in that position, then we would love to see you apply for it. Um, and we can answer any questions that you may have about that as well. And so that applications up on APTA Engage. So that's a new kind of portal that APTA is using for, for individuals and students to apply um, for volunteer opportunities. Um, someone will drop that link in the comment below. Um, it'll be easier to get through through a Pulse blog piece, which is awesome. And so another big announcement that we have, um, saying it live, so the next hashtag exchange essay will uh, take place next Sunday um, for March. So it's Sunday, March 3rd, 2019 at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Um, we're going to be with Mike Reinold. So he's a physical therapist. Um, he's a former Boston Red Sox head athletic trainer. And we're going to be talking about his free course on performance therapy and training and incorporating strength and conditioning into, into rehab and physical therapy with our patients. So you're definitely not going to want to miss that one. That's going to be a really awesome chat. Um, and someone will, drink, someone will drop that, uh, that link um, for the RSVP below as well and um, his free course as well. So someone will drop a link for his free course. Um, so, yeah, that's all I got for, for new announcements. So some really exciting stuff. Okay, so, yeah, Sandra, so, you know, thank you so much for joining us. So could you, like, tell our audience just a little bit of background about yourself? You bet. Thanks, Kyle. Uh, so I'm a University of Iowa PT graduate uh, back in 1989 when it was still a master's <laughs> program. Did my undergraduate degree at the University of Iowa in athletic training. Um, I did complete my uh, transitional doctorate program from the University of Missoula, Montana in 2015, uh, mainly because as I knew I wanted to get into leadership within APTA and PPS, that I wanted to make sure that I followed that 2020 vision of a doctorate in the doctoring profession. Um, I am from Iowa. Uh, I uh, 
interesting thing is back in our master's program, we could take elective classes. And I took an entrepreneurship class and actually wrote a business plan for Siouxland Physical Therapy back when I was in college. Um, had an opportunity one year out uh, when I was we moved to a different location and was applying for jobs and the the uh, physical medicine rehab or the director of a, a, a hospital's PT program a physician was a neurologist and actually uh, offered me to rent a room in his clinic to start my own practice um, and uh, unfortunately without the mentorship or really the know-hows at that time, I passed up that offer, but 16 years later, um, opened up my first practice, and now uh, we're at four and have kind of a growth strategy to go from there. So I say we, uh, my husband is an IT uh, business, vice president level. Um, he's in health IT now. We make a, a pretty great partnership. Uh, we have five kids between the two of us, uh, four grandkids. Uh, we're at our uh, son's with a twin four-year-old granddaughters this weekend. They just moved into a new house, and um, I got to help hang some pictures and stuff today. So uh, just, uh, you know, life's good, and I can't wait to share share my journey and everything I can help you guys out with. Awesome. Thank you so much. So you're very, very busy, as we can tell, right? <laughs> yeah, it is busy, but I wouldn't want it any other way. <laughs> awesome, right? It's the best. you gotta, you got to be busy. You know, it keeps you occupied. You know, I think <laughs> all of us can attest to that. It definitely keeps us occupied. Yep. So, yeah, so we know you're the president of the private practice section board. So can you just talk about, like, you know, what things that the, the private practice section is working on right now? You bet. Uh, you know, we've, we've – uh, we just did a new strategic plan. Um, so we do that every three years uh, and revisit it every year. Um, we have three pillars, um, educate, connect, and advocate. I was glad that you brought up the, the Federal Affairs Forum. I unfortunately will not be at this one, otherwise I'd like to meet everybody in person, but um, federal advocacy and advocacy at the state level is very much a part of my genetics and uh, very much part of what your association can really help you guys out with. So. Um, in the private practice section, and I know Kyle had told me you were going to ask me about resources and different things too, but um, boy, when I went to my first private practice section meeting, um, it was like I now became, um, you know, I was part of my tribe, um, was there, and I just felt so welcomed, even though I was the newbie on the block, and we know that um, the members and our resources can help everyone who wants to be in private practice, works for a private practice, is in private practice to be successful through networking and through the offerings that we have. So um, by uh, having people attend one of our key signature things, they connect, then we provide the education and, like I said, the advocacy to help all of us be successful. Right. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. So that's great. Awesome. So, you know, we'll start rolling through some questions. So okay. if anyone has some burning questions, you can roll them right through the comments. We'll, we'll put them right in the queue. Um, and we're hoping to get a lot of them asked tonight. So if you guys have any questions, you know, we'll put them right through the comments. Um, so we'll start out. You know, this is actually a big beast in the room. Everyone wants to know the answer to this. So, you know, what are the effects of slash what are the pros and cons of opening an insurance-based private practice versus a cash-based private practice? You know, that's a great question. And I love on Facebook that there's so many uh, groups that you can join. You know, the telehealth PTs, the cash-based Medicare, the cash-based PT, PT entrepreneur. And, um, you know, I follow each of them, and I know that they have success in each of their markets, right? I, I remember one gentleman uh, posted that um, he has a cash-based practice, I think, in Georgia. And 
he charged a, a lawyer $120 a visit. And in three visits, he could make the guy breathe again, right? His, his spine issue was, was taken care of. And the lawyer told the physical therapist, dude, you're charging way too little. He goes, I make three fifty an hour. He goes, what you just did for me was worth that and more. So, um, you know, I'm thinking, and it's, it's kind of one of the things that I teach all of our new uh, young therapists too, and this is probably just a, a little bit of my soapbox, is do not devalue or undervalue our worth, right? We're the only profession that has our complete unique skill set. A physician doesn't, you know, practice. Uh, uh, trainer, athletic trainer, anybody like that. So one, don't devalue it. Um, I, I, I have, uh, you know, I, I, I've chosen insurance-based. Um, I personally think probably a hybrid makes the most sense um, depending on what your demographic market is. Unless you have a real niche area or maybe you're in a really high um, urban area where um, you have a lot of people to be able to develop, you know, to, to pay cash. But I tell you what, once the, your reputation gets out and people know that, like, you care and you can fix them and help them with their problem, they're going to be willing to pay whatever it costs. Um, my personal journey, I have a chronic neck issue, and I am very, very happy to pay my physical therapist $175 because I have a high deductible plan. And I'm, you know, I'm there right, I'm right there with my, I write a check because I don't want them to have to have the 3% ding from the credit card, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but, because uh, they're friends of mine, but, um, you know, I know the value in my physical therapist's hands and what they can do to me, which I can't do to myself. So, um, it's, you know, it, it, I think that plays the part. So, when I say a hybrid, um, there is a little bit of a, a, a big controversy, whether controversy whether you can accept cash from a Medicare patient. Um, we actually held a session at our last annual conference for the private practice section where we had lawyers, one APTA staff, and then a private lawyer uh, debating whether or not it was legal to accept cash from a Medicare patient. Because right now in legislation, we're not able to, we're not a, a, a profession that's able to opt out is what they call it. Um, however, there's some new legislation about private contracting with Medicare where each provider, if we're added to that list or able to be on that list, you can do a one-to-one -one basis um, with that patient. So, um, you know, whether, so that's a, you know, a little bit of depending on what your risk is, uh, but for that fact, do you enroll in Medicare to be able to see your Medicare patients, but then uh, pay, not enroll in other payers um, to be able to do the cash-based? So, um, and I'm open to further explore that if anybody has a, a specific question related to that. Absolutely, you know, and I think it's I think it's pretty interesting how you said how a, high, a good you know way to go about it is doing a hybrid version. So mm -hmm. you know you take your you have contracts with insurance and you can also do a cash based um, you know you know resources as well. So do they have to be strictly you know for physical therapy or can cash based things be more like personal training if you hire a personal mm -hmm. trainer, massage therapy or, or anything like that? So when you're saying cash based, those can also be cash based um, incomes as well, right? Yes, they very much can, and we've explored and, and dabbled in those things along the way as well, especially, you know, maybe workplace fitness or, um, you know, yeah, that niche area. Uh, once people trust you and, and um, start to trigger your services, they may want additional services on top of what they already have as well. 
Um, I did, you know, one of the things was with um, being in a private practice versus a hospital-based is there are still some payers that will pay their, um, the people, their benefits as a copay versus towards their deductible, which never happens at a hospital-based PT. So um, if somebody has a $30 copay for an office visit, that would then pertain to you as your physical therapy benefit most likely. So if you have a really large, like a Blue Cross Blue Shield in your state that does, you know, uses that copay type of basis, mm-hmm. um, then being really with little work to be a provider for them, you now have another marketing tool where it's a $30 copay versus $175 towards your deductible to pay. Um, where there's a, maybe a little less cost sharing between the patient and the provider. Absolutely, that's great. You know, we have a, we have a lot of questions coming through from a, from a lot of students, so this is great. So I'm gonna we're gonna start rolling through these uh, through these questions here. Um, so Nick wants to know. He says, "What is the biggest challenge today facing you know individuals trying to start up private practices?" Uh, your confidence that you won't make it work. <laughs> That's a big one. Um, it's a big one. So, um, you know, Kyle, you and I talked and, and kind of prepped for this, and um, you talked about declining reimbursements and, you know, maybe more um, red tape. And unfortunately, that's the message we hear because that's all the things that APTA is reporting on. Um, and I caution you guys, if you've, been tr- if you've been mentored by someone who's maybe 55, 60 years and older, they and they've been in private practice since the 70s or 80s. Yes, their environment today is a lot tougher than it was back then. But any of any of the PTs that started a private practice ever after 1990 and 2000, it's it's fine. Um, we just we didn't have it in the heyday when they could pretty much name their price. So I just want to let people know that if you're talking to that age group and they've been in practice a long time, they're going to say it's doom and gloom, but it's really not. It's really not that doom and gloom. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of ways payers are, um, you know, paying well, like you said, the cash base and those types of things as well. So right. I think that, yeah, I think the biggest thing is don't listen to the naysayers. If you've got the passion and the entrepreneurial drive, you're going to do fine. You're going to make it. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think what you, you said it very finely, that's the the biggest, you know, obstacle is just not believing in yourself and really just not going for it. Because I'm, you know, I'm a firm believer in the American dream. If you, you know, if you have something you want to accomplish, then you can go out and accomplish that. You just have to have your mind right to it. So I think that's, like you said, arguably the biggest, you know, concern and an obstacle that individuals have is they just can't really pull the trigger and really go for it, you know? Yeah. And that's, and it's okay if you don't, um, you can, you know, there's, we have so many opportunities in our field, but if this is a dream of yours, uh, you know, I would say have the confidence that you can make it work. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so Bree wants to know, so she says, how much experience did you have, um, prior going into private practice? And do you think that helped and challenged your success? Are you ta- I know you talked a little bit about that before. So do you think that helped and challenged your success um, today? You know, that's a really great question, and I, I'm just going to have to go on what my personal experience was. I, I was a PT of 16 years. Um, now, uh, being an athletic trainer as an undergrad, um, those of us that have done athletic training, you know that you're very comfortable in, in injury triage and management, and you've done rehabilitation in the athletic training room. So, I, you know, I think I would have been pretty confident early out, Um of at least a skill set that I had that was unique 
but the big piece that I was missing at that time was someone to champion the business knowledge part because I didn't know where to go. And I think that's one of the big things of being um, with our private practice section is the moment that you trigger being a member, the resources are available to you. Um, and even when I started, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer, right? So we interviewed lawyers. I'm not an accountant. We interviewed accountants, you know, so we knew parts of, I knew parts of my weaknesses. And so I interviewed people to try to make sure that they, um, they complemented my gaps. Um, I would imagine a big thing is the payments, right? Like how do you get paid? How do you become a provider? What's, what's legal and with compliance? And, um, boy, we've got so many members that give away their that information for free, and then you can hire consultants and those types of things too. So, if that's your worry, your your peers within your profession will help you, no matter if you're a new grad or you're 15 or 20 years out. Right, right. And I know we were, you know we were talking about prior to coming on the chat that one of the biggest obstacles, again, with individual like maybe students just coming out of physical therapy school is they really don't have that business savvy yet. They're not really positive of all like the business, uh, like we were talking about red tape and, you know, everything surrounding the business realm. So Mike wants to know, he says, do you recommend taking basic business courses to, to prep a private practice or even going towards an MBA? Is that, is that something that you would advise? Um, I, yeah, that's a great question. I think you need to take uh, how to, how to read financial reports, one-on-one dummies. What's that yellow book that they do, right? The, yeah. you know, that, that, that they sell everything for. Um, yep. Being able to read a basic, um, you know, uh, profit and loss statement, balance sheet, because uh, if you need to get a loan, um, you know, all those things account. But again, your lawyer or your accountant, if you interview them and you really trust them and they know something maybe about the healthcare market, I think that's going to be pretty set. Um, if, uh, you know, and I have a lot of um, PTs that I know in private practice that have their MBAs, and I really do admire their uh, thought process and their skill set um, have dabbled with thinking about that myself. Uh, though if I do another career, I'll probably, I want to be a health policy lawyer. That's kind of what I've actually fell in love with um, throughout my career is health policy. So, um, I, you know, I wouldn't discourage it, but I, it is definitely um, not a majority of successful practice owners in our association do not have their MBA but they probably have friends and consultants that do. Right. And I know we were talking about also before coming on, you know, if as long as you have those resources available and we know that APTA, just the general APTA and also the private practice section has good resources available for, for students, uh, fresh PTs, even seasoned PTs and opening their private practice. So could you share a little bit about, about the resources that are available for those who are thinking about opening a private practice? You bet. So if this is, if you're thinking, okay, what do I do to even get started? Uh, we have a book called How to Start a Private Practice that's available on the PPS website. And then um, Lynn Steffes, Rob Worth, and Paul Welk, who are all three very prominent people in our association, put on a Con Ed course. It's a pre-con at our annual conference, which will be in Orlando, Florida this year. And then every CSM is a pre-con. And I, you know, I, I've, I've, I've actually talked to people that have gone to those classes and they said that that was just an, an amazing um, thing to be able to attend, just get the basics. Um, in our section, we started a, a something called peer to peer a couple of years ago, where it uh, puts you with like size by revenue practice owner, owners. It doesn't matter how long you've been out, you could be a new grad, um, and, but you're not in competing demographic areas. 
And the idea is it's like a mastermind group um, because you all face the same challenges no matter where you're at. So in my peer-to-peer group, um, there's a gentleman from Philly, one from D.C., a gal from Washington State, and a gentleman from Idaho. And we have monthly calls, and we get together twice a year face-to-face. And that has been, you know, you bring down the walls, and you're, like, honest about, um, you know, I was caught, I'm caught up in the whirlwind personally right now. We just we opened a new clinic, and I, you know, trying to work on my goals, and I've been sidetracked. And, you know, um, that's been a great thing. And, um, and then the mentorship and just the collaboration with you're able to come to conference and, and ask people questions is just really significant. And I was talking with uh, with Brooke Janicki on the previous exchange chat about uh, mentorship, which is a you know it's it's a big hot topic nowadays for new grads coming out of school. The big thing, and I, I think this is it's it's kind of been correlated. It's been proven that a lot of new grads coming out they really want mentorship, you know, yeah. above even higher payer things like that. They want to have someone there that can kind of show them the ropes, and you know, if they're focusing on orthopedics or neurology, for example, that'll mm-hmm. kind of show them show them those ropes and kind of mentor them through the process of being a fresh PT. Right. Yeah, that's, it is. It's great. And I, I continue to have mentors that mentor me in my leadership and, and as a clinic owner as well. Great. And, and you're being mentored all throughout your career. You know, you've mm-hmm. been a seasoned PT for over 30 years. You're still going to have um, for mentors that someone you can bounce ideas off to, which is awesome. Yes. And it's the same thing as a fresh PT, you know. So the learning is a, is a lifelong process. It is, Exactly. Awesome. This is great. So we have plenty of questions rolling through. So, so guys, this is awesome. Like keep, keep them rolling through. Um, we'll put them right in the queue and um, Sandy would be happy to answer all of them. So thank you so much. So let's see. So Alex says, um, this will probably pertain to yourself. So what marketing strategies have you used slash benefited from the most when starting and growing your business? Okay. So in our markets, um, when people um, you, you, you ultimately, if you're not owned by a hospital or by a physician group, you need a reputation that people need to see you because you're the best at what you do. Okay. So in order for that to happen and I, uh, is, and I'm actually just mentoring a new grad with this right now is first people have to figure out who you are. They have to know you. So you have to be out there, right? So you have to be in the spaces that you want your patients to be in. So let's say you like the, um, the fitness group, right? So you go to CrossFit gyms, you, you know, you join a, uh, a young professionals club, right? So that you're, you become engaged with people um, as you're bringing in your clientele. So once they know you, then they right, figure out they like you. Once they like you, they figure out they trust you. And once they trust you, you go buy your services, okay? And once you then make them better, they're going to tell all their friends how awesome you are. So it's like this, this domino effect. So that's really the biggest marketing thing is I have to be very public in my communities I um, am very, you have to be very good at what you do and you have to be comfortable with telling people this is my skill set as a physical therapist and I'm unique than anyone else that you could possibly go to. Um, And we're going to get to the cause of the problem versus put a Band-Aid on it and wow them with the fact that they're moving better, they're feeling better. And so then they start to tell everybody and then again, it's a domino effect to the point uh, where hopefully you're like, you know, I have a waiting list. Um, so I'll put you in that queue. Um, but really that's, it's, that's probably the best marketing is just being, you've got to be out there and, uh, letting people know who you are and what you do. Absolutely. You got to get that patient buy-in, you know, that's a big thing. 
once you have, you know, you get your clientele in and they start giving you good reviews and, you know, you're getting them better with fewer visits, then, you know, the word of mouth is going to, is going to really take off. And like you said, really getting out there and talking to your patients, whether it's just locally, statewide conferences, national conferences, just talking to potential you know, individuals or patients. It's definitely one thing you really need to you know, take into account yeah. is that word of mouth because yeah. you know, nothing beats the word of mouth and actually talking directly with individuals mm-hmm. rather than social media marketing or anything else like that. So that's great. Well, and look at how you buy your services in the area you live, right? So, you know, word of mouth on your Facebook page is the same as word of mouth in the grocery store so or the coffee shop. So you have to kind of really look at how do you trigger, how do you decide to buy services? Like if you're, if you move somewhere and you need a dentist, how do you choose the dentist? Well, do you ask your coworker, right? Or do you ask your neighbor or your hair, your barber, right? So you want to be that person that comes up. But um, I have a friend who started a PT clinic in what they call the waiting room to heaven, which is the retirement communities in Florida, right? So their demographic is different. And those people might actually still read a nurse newspaper, or they may actually listen to the radio for the, the weather in the morning to know if they can play golf. So it may be very unique to the, the area that you're in. So I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. One Super good point. I really love that point because it really, really does. The, the people who you're trying to market to, you need to market to them in the most effective way possible because your, your market does change based on where your niche is. So I think that's a really, really awesome point. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Great, great. So we'll keep rolling through these. This is awesome. So Marcus, um, he's a student, so he wants to know, I know my main focus as a student is to pass the boards to MPTE, um, but what can I do now to start preparing myself to start a private practice as a student? Okay, so, um, well, probably figure out where you want to live. Um, you know, where where is that practice going to be? And do you want to be in a building or do you want to be mobile? Um, do you run a rent a spot in a neurologist's office? Do you want to be in a fitness center? Um, so kind of think about, um, you know, what, what is it the thing that, that really jazzes you on as a treating therapist? So um, just, 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 to, just to share, and I've learned this as a, a mentor as well, too, and as an employer, is when you're, okay, so you're going to figure out where you're going to live, right? You know, if you don't want to deal with lizards like we've had this weekend in Iowa, you're not going to live in Iowa, right? So you're going to go somewhere else. So and then what do you really love? Do you really love, like, work worker injuries? Or do you really love spine? Or do you love pelvic health? Or do you love returning athletes to their highest level? Okay? Be, make sure that you pick whatever area you want to treat as your passion. Because if it's not your passion, you're going to crash and burn. Okay? So once you get that kind of figured out, then continue to look at Con Ed to build up those things and start to read um, and learn and come to conference and um, get the advice on A to Z of what you need to do to, to really get it triggered um, as well. I, you know, and I know this is, I've listened to a, pod, a TED talk um, the other day and about side hustles, right? And I think, right. and being on the Facebook pages um, for the cash base and telehealth, I really get the feeling that a lot of people are in a, in a job somewhere and now they start their side hustle as their own private practice and making that transition. And there's, that's an awesome thing. You know, your Saturday side hustle is brilliant to start to, to be able to make that transition over. Right. And it's great. And I know we were talking beforehand before the, you know, the chat started out, um, obviously I go to Sacred Heart University. So 
Um, you know, we're blessed enough to be given all these orthopedic different schools of thought, the MSI approach, Maitland approach, Mulligan, all these different orthopedic schools. And kind of when you become a clinician, you can choose to kind of dive in with all of them or really find, you know, what you really like the most, what you, what you find is most effective. You know, and it's kind of, it applies kind of the same to, to private practice. You got to find your niche. And, and if you're not passionate about what that, what that niche is, then you, like you said, it's not going to be as successful as it could be than if it, if it really was what you're passionate about. So I think that's a really good point. Awesome. So um, quick, we have one question from PhysioU. So they say, um, please provide one practical tip that folks um, thinking about opening a private practice can um, use to thrive in the new payment system. Um, we talked about that a little bit before. Okay, so in the new payment system being more the payment for quality or um, the versus the, the CBT code. So I think, uh, you know, one of the, the things that we're going to have to do is as we move to a new payment system, the value-based payment system, you're going to have to collect some data. Um, so part of your expenses is going to be to be um, with something or a group that provides outcomes that you can show um, that certain things that you do are actually um, consistent with national norms, you know, number of visits per, uh, per eval, episode of care, what's the functional change in pain levels. So um, there's a, you know, there's a whole school of them out there. APTA has their registry now as well. But I think that's probably going to be the biggest one because payers um, are going to want to see actuarial type numbers versus, um, you know, quotes from, you know, the, I really liked my therapist. They made me better. So I think that's probably moving to a different type of payment model is being able to collect and um, accurately share the data of your own personal skills or your company skills. Right. Yeah. The insurance companies, you know, like you said, they, they like the objective measures. So I know this is the one I'm most familiar with, but it's called photo. I don't know if you've heard of photo. Yeah. Photo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one of them. So could you provide our viewers, you know, with a little bit of knowledge about photo or any other ones um, that you might know about? Yep. Um, uh, the one that our company uses is care connections. And I will now tell you, this is an individual opinion. This is not an opinion of the private practice section, even though I'm their president. Okay. So, um, the, uh, I am one of the, our company is one of six companies that started a network in Iowa called Midwest Therapy Network. Um, and the, um, we, they're small clinics uh, ownership to large clinic ownership. But Care Connections is what we've used, decided to go to. And it's really pretty amazing because we get quarterly reports. And I'm sure Photo does this or other ones. Or WebPT, I think, has their own, um, the EMR vendor. Um, but uh, what it gives us is by body part or diagnosis on how the functional change or pain change and uh, perceived change overall is compared to our clinic by clinician, to our network, and to the national average. So if one clinic is falling below national average on low back pain, then that tells me, okay, what are we doing different? Are we actually... Maybe we're scripting or not saying the right things to our patients that another clinic in our, our network is doing. So the patients are perceiving that maybe they're not doing as well as they actually are. Or is it that we need to um, become more cohesive in our skill set or that we need to be to do or learn another skill set? So uh, I think all of those. I'm, I'm totally on data. Um, don't even get me started. I'm, I've gone in payment policy and compliance about the, how we poorly report what we do. We don't 
we drop codes. We don't uh, give our payers accurate data on what we do. We just build Therex and manual therapy when we're doing therapeutic activity in Neuroread. And so they have this huge data set of all this stuff that's crap because we are we don't report exactly what we're doing. And, and we need to really make that change and, and have that data to prove the awesomeness that our professional skills provide to our patients. Right, right. Yeah, it could, so you mentioned like neuromuscular, Riad, um, Therax, Therax. So for our viewers who may be not as familiar with that, um, could you kind of elaborate on the units and, and, and things regarding that in regards to Therax and all those? Yeah, you bet. Um, and every all of this is available to you just by, you know, Google. Um, but they're called CPT codes, current procedural terminology that's set by the American Medical Association. I really encourage you guys to, um, you know, to to Google them and read the definitions, okay? So, um, for instance, therapeutic activity is actually um, the when we are providing an intervention where we want to improve someone's functional movement, okay? Where therapeutic exercise is to improve someone's range of motion or strength. Neuromuscular riad is balance and kinesthetics, okay? So um, I take a squat maneuver as an example. A squat could be a TheraX. Um, charge because maybe you want to actually improve the person's strength, but maybe you want to improve their ability to get up out of the chair or sit on the toilet without falling. Okay. Then that becomes a therapeutic activity. Um, if that's your intent of why you're doing the activity or a squat could be a neuro uh, riad because it's, you're working on balance in a crouched position because they have to pick their young child up off the ground with back pain. So um, always, when you're coding what you're doing, look at the intent of the intervention or the skill that you've provided to them versus saying a squat is always a strengthening maneuver. Um, so there you go. Right, and, and you get reimbursed differently based on if it's Therex, um, Therax, or, or neuromuscular rehab. The reimbursement rate is a little bit different to them. So, again, like you said, you have to go back and, you know, evaluate why you're actually performing mm -hmm. that specific activity, and then you could bill it accordingly of what the actual intent was. Right. There's a whole um, equation of um, how, what is the professional skill set to do something. So an evaluation charge for as a physical therapist is higher than um, applying an ultrasound because of the lack, because of the um, amount of um, technical knowledge that you have to do that. It likely completing a brain surgical a technique is paid higher because of that professional skill set than a physical therapy evaluation. So it's uh, they set up this uh, formula to do that. So I, I'm just I get sad when we just all bundle it because of ease into one or two code sets when we actually do a, a wide range of, of items with our skill. Absolutely. So super good information to know. That's great. Awesome. So Catherine wants to know um, this is kind of going back just a little bit. So she says, is there an ideal number of business partners you need to be successful without having too many chefs in the kitchen, quote unquote? <laughs> That's a great question. So it all depends. Uh, there's nothing wrong with just having you be the person, okay? But, um, but you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, wrestling, right? You're the one that wins or loses your match. And so it all falls on you, okay? But maybe you want to have another business partner because you want to take time off um, when you have a baby and someone else is going to cover your, your patients. Um the biggest thing that we found, we, we had brought in two partners early on, and we've actually divested of both of those partnerships um, for different reasons. Um, but the, the adage of having the exit strategy 
uh, written down before you sign that partnership is is very 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 true. And um, there's we have several lawyers who are PTs in our section. Paul Welk from uh, Pennsylvania is one of them, and we just actually spent. Uh, time this year after being in business for 13 years to really get a solid partnership model because we had two uh, painful experiences of having partnerships not um, not be successful. So right now um, we employ 25 uh, people and yeah, and it's I you know I it's my husband and I um, who own the company. Um, so, but I. I'm now at the point in my career where I'm I'm not I don't really want to see patients as much. Um, so it's awesome that I have hired people, you know, that can work in this model, but be their own personal practice within our practice is what they do. Um, and so that they can see the patients and help the people in the community save with it. That's great. That you know that that's really awesome. And congratulations to to you and your husband on successfully owning six uh, practices. That's yeah. awesome. Thanks. Awesome. Um, so let's see. So Ryan wants to know, and we, ta- we kind of touched on this a little bit in the in the marketing question that we talked about, but he wants to know how important is it um, building a personal brand to further advance your business, particularly in crowded markets? So we know we touched on that a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and there's, the, I think that has everything to do to get started, especially if you're that one solo practitioner. You, It is critical for you to build your personal brand. You know, what makes you unique? Why do people come to you? Are you flexible in time? Um, do you offer, you know, additional things or do you come to their home? You know, all those kinds of things, that personal brand and just that being able to people trust you. Now, the interesting thing is, is once you've worked so hard at building your personal brand and you want to now step away a little bit and bring someone else into your practice, when everybody comes in and says, I want to see Kyle. Uh, I, I was told to see Sandy. Well, you know, uh, Janet is just as good as Sandy, but I was told to see Sandy. So it, that's a little bit of a dance when you start to expand and bring in other people um, that they then have an opportunity to build their personal brand to the point where um, now you have just been able to provide those people. But then making sure that you've screened the people that you're bringing in or maybe joining as a partner that they truly do share your ethical core and your treatment focus um, because otherwise if you're too different, sometimes that can be a problem as well. So, Exactly. And I know you touched on, or we talked a little bit about, um, you know, opening up a clinic just by yourself. So uh, if you're opening up a clinic, um, what do you suggest or kind of what is your opinion on having like your last name, for example, like Stapleton physical therapy um, versus, you know, more of a generalized name or more of like a, 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 you know, functional name like performance physical therapy. So I don't know what your opinion is on those. Um, I think it's completely individual. I've, I have, a, I mean, everyone is successful. Um, so this is going to be really transparent, but I've, I've been married. I'm on my second marriage. Um, and so when I opened my first clinic being remarried, I, I didn't have a last name that everybody knew me as. Um, because I'd had, I'd had my maiden name practicing my first married name back to my maiden name. And then my second married name. So it's kind of the joke is I don't know which last name I would have picked. Right. So, um, our company is called hometown physical therapy, and then we're located in the communities that we serve. So that's how we've decided to do it. I really don't think it makes any difference. It's just, you know, do you put your, do you start with a, so 
you're the, at the, you know, the beginning of the alphabet in a Google search. Um, that may be a good uh, segment that you do if there's a complete marketing guru. But um, again, in our in healthcare, just like you pick your dentist or your eye doctor, you know, it's it's by reputation. You're not going to go to somebody where you're like, I got to wait in the waiting room for two hours before they see me, and I have to cancel the rest of my day because they're not, you know receptive to my needs or they're in and out of the room in a minute you don't go to people like that so i don't really think the the name of your practice is that big of a deal really good information like you said very individualized to to each person who's opening up the, their clinic you know it's it's whatever you know their good their goal is you know maybe maybe they like a more functional name and they can kind of go with that but there's really no you know better or, or worse you know way to, to name a company so i think that's a really good point yeah we've we've uh, acquired two different clinics and um, even after owning them for five years, people refer to it as the previous owner's name. You know, they're not no longer the, but we're in the same location, right? We have a different name and a different logo, but they still, oh yeah, that was John Thomas Physical Therapy. Yep, yep, that's where you come, you know, so. Absolutely. Yeah, everyone, keep the, keep the questions rolling through. Um, we've had plenty of questions tonight. We have about roughly 20 more minutes or so with Sandra. Um, so if you have any more questions that you really want to ask, just uh, roll them through the comments and, and we'll queue them up for you. So very excited. Let's see. So let's see which would be a good one to ask next. So um, so how long does it take, would you say, on average to make a private practice profitable? I know this may be very subjective, um, but what, what is your opinion on that or on an average? Well, that's, uh, you know, that all depends on what kind of practice you want to set up. Okay, so if you want a brick and mortar practice, it's going to take a little bit longer because obviously you have fixed sets, uh, fixed aspect, uh, assets or um, expenses like rent, uh, you know, phone, internet, um, all those kinds of things, parking lot, any of your condo fees. If you want to be a mobile PT, you've just eliminated all of your building or fixed expenses in those regards, and now you're looking more at maybe your portable massage table, your car, your subway pass, you know, those kinds of things. So um, here, I, I wasn't sure if someone was going to ask the question, but I, I, I really, here's my accounting 101, is if you have a, if you have a dollar bill um, and take that out and figure out what expenses come out of that dollar and then multiply that dollar by what you, what you want to make for a living. Right. And then you can figure out how many patients you have to see based on that, that value. So if it, in our brick and mortar um, environments, 45 cents of that dollar is a revenue share for my therapist. So I actually don't have them on salary. They do a revenue share. Okay, um, of the fifty-five cents that's left over, eight cents of it pays to get the claim paid, so the billing part of it, the paper, <laughs> internet to go out, the people to get it, to put it in the bank. Um, about ten percent is the payroll taxes, um, and then there's our contribution to the four hundred one k, and then there's the building expense and the heating and the cooling and the uh, medical supplies, the TheraBand. So that what is what makes up that 55% with anywhere from a 10 to 15 cent profit for the owner is, is the goal. So, um, so if you have no building expenses, you've just taken out 30 cents of that dollar. So your ability to have a profit is, is um, very much accelerated. 
Right, and that's actually a really good segue into the next question. So PhysioU was asking before, they, they wanted to know how much capital you needed in order to open up private practice. And I know, you know, if you have no building expenses, you most likely will have to have bought that, that practice at some point because if you're on a lease, you're going to have to, you know, be paying that lease for however long you're in there. But if you actually buy out that, you know, that, that building, then you won't have that, you know, that 30%, like you said. So how much capital would you say is, is necessary? Um, so in our experiences with the six locations that we did, we've gone from anywhere, um, and this, I don't want to scare you guys away, but we had a $400,000 note with our first one, but we built a huge building. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, the one practice that uh, people still can't get the name right, uh, we bought that practice for 120,000 and it already had a consistent, uh, cash load of patients coming in, um, and the previous therapist got his own AR or his accounts receivable. So we, we collected it and then gave it back to him. Um, you know, if you're, um, if you don't, you know, and, and, and PC's changed a little bit in the last 20 to 30 years, you know, you, you've all probably practiced in a clinic where they have five Cybex machines, right? A treadmill mm -hmm. and new step, new steps are, um, for $4,500 brand new. Okay. So if you're in a, in a place where you want to have a new step and you can't find them used because they're so popular, then you're going to have to ex figure out that you're going to need a little bit more capital expense. Um, we just uh, moved to a new location. Um, I'm figuring we're going to spend about 20 grand to get that one up and going. So it could be as low as that. Um, but man, if you're a mobile PT and you just need your hands and an internet connection and a you know, some sort of EMR that's HIPAA protected in your cell phone um, and your vehicle, that sounds, you know, that's not that much capital to have to, to get set up with. Right. I, I would argue, too, it, it's also dependent on location as well. So, you know, if you're in Greenwich, Connecticut, for example, where, you know, the cost of housing is, is much more than, you know, say Florida, for example, it's also dependent on location, right? Right. Oh, it completely does. Uh, market prices for all that kind of stuff stuff is definitely is definitely based on that. So that's where, uh, you know, I think it's a good exercise to put together a business plan, regardless if you're going to borrow money or not. Um, and there's great, uh, you know, you could buy a business plan program or get a free one online. But I really um, am very, you know, set that that's a really, really good exercise to go through. Because the business plan questions they ask you um, – you know, really make you think about, oh, I never thought about that piece or, you know, what's that going to cost me, that kind of thing. Right, right. Um, so Nick, he wants to know, what's your take on opening up um, a practice with family members who are also physical therapists or physical therapist assistants? And you kind of talked about that before you you own the, the business with your, with your husband. Yeah, uh, I think that's great. Um, you know, I've got several uh, friends that it's a husband-wife uh, that or uh, father-daughter to a father-son that they practice, uh, handed the practice down to. Amy Snyder, who's uh, our uh, PPS secretary, uh, she's a second-generation PT owner in Milwaukee. Her, her father and mother started the practice, and now her and her husband are there. Um, I, you know, I would, uh, I would imagine um, you, you still want to have things in writing just in case things go south, but, um, you know, it's, it's a great way to um, live your profession and, and, and spend time with people that you really love. Um, but, you know, 
be careful. You, you need to be able to have those critical and crucial conversations um, and still, uh, you know, hug each other at the end of the day. So it can happen, but I think you just really have to um, go into it with uh, eyes wide open. Exactly. That's a really good point, especially when you know, you're working with your family members. You have to always be able to separate kind of that, that work and, and just regular life. You need to be able to separate and have that balance. So I think that's very important for individuals who may be thinking about pursuing that. Yep. But the really cool thing is, is when you go home and after dinner, you want to talk about your work day. You don't have to do like a 20 minute, hey, I'm going to set the stage for you because I know you work in a different field and you don't really know what I'm talking about. But I really want to share this with you. Um, I think that's the really cool thing. That's why I call when I go to PPS, it's my tribe, because I can walk in the room, right? It's not like having dinner with my girlfriends or friends like, like okay, I'm going to tell you 10 minutes of background so you can understand where I'm coming from because they have no idea what my life is like as PT, right? So so that's really cool is when you do have family in, it's, it's, it's just a flowing, um, and that can provide a lot of energy too. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so Bree just sent in a question. So she heard you talking a little bit before about being a mobile PT. So she wants to know um, if you could elaborate a little bit more about being a mobile PT. And with that, can you still bill to insurance? And how does being that mobile PT, like you said, affect liability insurance? You bet. So um, so first, if you want to become a provider for insurances, um, there's something called a place of service code in that's that identifies where you're providing that service at. Um, when you're in a clinic facility, a private practice clinic, it's place of service 11 because that's at your office. If you're in the patient's home, it's place of service 12. So um, the, it, and this is broadly across, you can look up place of service codes. Um, place of service 18 is at someone's workplace, okay? So you can go to a lawyer's office and treat them over their lunch hour and bill it through their insurance just by changing the place of service code. Um, the other, the, okay, I was excited to share that information. Can you say the second part of the question, Kyle? Absolutely. Um, so she wanted to know how it can affect your liability insurance yeah. if you can still just bill to insurance in general. Yeah, you can. Um, just to let everybody know, once, when, once you have your physical therapist license, you need to make sure that anytime you're giving advice or using your skill set, you're under the auspice of your personal liability insurance. So this even pertains to if you're working for someone and you've got a malpractice insurance under them, but on the weekend you're doing your own side hustle, you need to have your own because you're not, you're getting paid directly. It's not, you're not representing that other employer. Okay. So um, it's really important that you have that, but you're covered no matter what, where you're at, if you're in a building, if you're in someone's workplace, if you're on the sidelines of a sports event, um, at a gym, or in their home. Awesome. Awesome. So I think we have time for two to three more questions um, based on the time. Um, so this is a question from Amelia. She wants to know, what do you consider your biggest failure, and what did you learn from it? That's a really good question. <laughs> oh, my biggest failure was um, one of our, our second partner, um, so she, we, she had an extremely successful clinic and, um, but was, so here's, here's probably um, some of the downfalls is you, you really have to be able to structure your day because if you're the private practice owner, you can feel like you're always working in your business and you need to really structure time off and time for self-care. And if you're married and have a family that you have time 
with your family as well. Okay. So she um, thought that, you know, she was doing notes at home and uh, was kind of wooed to go back to the local hospital to become a pediatric only therapist and work less hours where in reality, she didn't even have to see patients in the clinic that she was managing because it was so successful. She could have drawn her full salary and never treated a patient, um, but she did not, she could never uh, in her mind think about separating herself from it. So, you know, one of the things we caution is you're going to leave this environment, but you're going to take yourself to the next one. So, you know, you've got to be careful that you don't take your habits, you know, as you go from place to place as well. But um, that one ended up being really sad because we didn't have an exit strategy really. We had one drawn up, but we never signed it. Um, and that's complete transparency that we had this uh, draft of one, but we never executed it. So um, the hospital ended up closing that clinic for about um, $45,000 when they should have purchased it for 500000 to close it. So because we didn't have that paperwork and that stringent, you can't leave or this is going to happen and this has to be the process. She lost out on, you know, $225,000 and obviously we lost off on the other half of that too. So that's probably our biggest regret. And knowing that we've, we've changed and have everything in place now moving forward. Awesome. Right. Right. So let's see. So James, um, James wants to know, and we touched on this before and just a little bit, but, and you can kind of reaffirm that as a student, you, you can do it. But he wants to know, is there a set amount of time after graduating and becoming licensed that you, that you believe is needed before contemplating um, venturing of opening up your own practice? Yeah, I'm just going to really try to give you guys the confidence that what, as a physical therapist, you own a very unique part of healthcare that no one has, okay? A chiropractor maybe has a little, an athletic trainer has a little, a personal trainer has a little, an orthopedic surgeon can diagnose, but they can't treat. They may, you know, you guys at, on the, on the draw, you provide such a unique service to your patients that they will not experience with another healthcare provider. So there, there really should not be, there's no set time that you've got to have this much experience because it's your own personal professional practice, no matter where you're working. And, um, you know, taking ownership of that and becoming the best that you can. Um, I'm, oh my gosh, if I'd known pain science 30 years ago, I'm going to have my 30th class reunion this year. And you know, the whole pain science, I'm like, oh my gosh, I could have transformed more patients' lives in a much broader way than I did, but it wasn't even around. So if I said I had to wait until I knew everything, I I wouldn't even be here talking to you tonight about private practice. So just have the confidence that no one else has has what a PT knows, and and you're always going to evolve and learn. So don't wait for the magic moment because you'll you'll always it'll never happen because you're going to keep learning. So. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, Sandra, thank you so much for, for coming on tonight. I think we'll, we'll start wrapping up. Okay. Awesome. Um, so could you please share if you have a – you have a, so we don't have a Twitter account. Um, could you share your, your Twitter handle in case, um, you know, some individuals out there want to follow you on Twitter? Yes, it's uh, SL Norby, SL is in Lionel, uh, at PT Rocks uh, with an exclamation awesome. point. Do that. Great. 
Um, so yeah, so we'd love to hear from you guys in the comments. So you know, after watching this exchange chat, making private practice a reality, um, just share with us what, what you're going to do now in the future after you know getting this really valuable information. And also, um, just let us know what you need um, some more information on, because this, this chat is going to extend on Twitter. Uh, we're going to really uh, provoke the Twitter conversation and uh, we keep responding to each other online and keep this conversation going um, you know, for many months to come. So yeah, Sandra, thank you so much for coming on. I know we had a, we had a lot of productive questions. That's awesome. I, this is what I love. I'm here to mentor and help you guys because it's complete, complete reality. Uh, PT's alive and well and private practice is strong. So don't, don't believe any of those naysayers out there. You guys can do it. Absolutely. And just another reminder for everyone, we'll see you next Sunday, March 3rd, 7 p.m. Um, with Mike Reinold. And we'll be talking about performance therapy and, um, and training. So thank you, everyone, so much for, for tuning in tonight. We hope this is a very productive chat for you. Awesome. Thank you, everyone.